Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. This is a follow-up to our episode, Stop Hugging Cops. In this episode, Brian and I share some resources and discuss alternatives to calling the police. We talk about the chain reaction that is created by bringing the police to a community or into an individual's life, and we suggest ways to scrutinize the impulse to call the police. Brian also calls on white people to consider what it means for them to call the police on black and brown people. And he offers some thoughts for how white people can do better in situations that generally don't require intervention. I also share some of what I've learned from transformative justice work and what communities can do to address harm without state intervention. This episode is chock full of insights, ideas, suggestions, and lessons, and it is by no means a comprehensive account of alternatives to calling the police, but it does provide a place to begin. We want to thank our listeners for helping us pass 100,000 downloads. Both Brian and I are thrilled that the work that we're doing is resonating with so many people. Beyond Prisons continues to be a space that nurtures us and pushes us to do better. And your feedback and support means so much to us. We hope you find this episode useful. So we are back with, as promised, our follow-up on our last episode with uh, discussing the video from Professor Dylan Rodriguez. Um, Got some good feedback on that, and I'm grateful for folks who listened and commented on it and shared it. Um, And today, Kim and I were thinking about talking a bit more about uh, what to do instead of calling the police and how to sort of think critically, uh, not just about calling the police, but how to respond to things that one might normally respond to by calling the police differently. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you think, Kim? Anything you want to add to the setup there? No, I mean, I I think we can, you know, just go ahead and jump right in. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll I'll just kick it off with a couple thoughts um, and, you know, feel free to interrupt me, of course. Um, You know, we'll have a bunch of resources that, uh, at least my comments, pulled from uh, in the episode notes, um, you know, some different cop watch, anarchist groups, abolitionist, transformative justice groups um, that have put together a wealth of great resources that are out there. and uh, so that's where a lot of sort of my notes from this are coming. Um, and we'll mm-hmm. list that, like I said, in the episode notes. But I think a good place to start um, sort of hinging off of our last conversation is to, uh, you know, when we're thinking about having a critical analysis of calling the police, it helps to start by first thinking about the different ways that calling the police into a situation, either into a community or a neighborhood or, uh, you know, into an individual's life can set off a chain of, you know, negative consequences and reaction, you know, a chain reaction, basically, um, that even if it's not, you know, something like an act of violence that you're calling the cops on, you could be introducing violence or even just unnecessary punitive responses to a situation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that thinking about that and thinking that through in a few different situations helps sort of like, you know, for, for folks out there, particularly white folks who are listening to this and sort of grappling with the impulse to call the cops and maybe feeling like insecure about moving away for that for any reason, I think it helps to first think about that chain reaction and have that in your gut to sort of like steal you against wanting to call 911, right? And I think one mm-hmm. example I came across, I think it was from Rose City Cop Watch, um, uh, you know, was talking about if someone's pulled over on the highway, you know, and maybe they got an accident or, you know, they have a broken taillight or a flat tire or something, you know, some people might respond by like, oh, you know, I got to call 911 to get this person help. You know, it's not even like a, your typical violent confrontation. Um, however, you know, that person could end up with fines for having like a broken taillight or they could get arrested for having like an expired registry. You know what I mean? Like there's all sorts of things uh, that could come out of that situation when really the, what the goal of calling the police was, was to help somebody. Mm-hmm. And so from there, the way to think about it is, well, for different specific scenarios, what actually is the help? that needs to happen here you know mm-hmm. does somebody need a mechanic does somebody need to be taken to safety does somebody need to go to the hospital you know things like that um and then working from there so kind of a, a long rambling introduction but just sort of a place that i thought you know was a good place to start commenting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't know what you think kim yeah no i think that's um that's really good i think um what i would add to that is that you know when we're saying don't call the police um that i want to put caveats on that um Mm -hmm. in part because i recognize that in a lot of places there are very few or other resources Mm -hmm. and communities may not be in a position to implement or you know have alternatives ready um, Mm -hmm. to respond to different situations. But that, again, is something that folks have to decide for themselves. So, you know, when we're saying don't call the police um, or, you know, I think I'd frame it differently. I'd say Mm -hmm. there are different options um, available for us, depending, as you said, on the situation. Mm -hmm. So if we have different structures um, in place to help people get through a crisis, whatever that crisis is, um, then that that makes it easier for us Mm -hmm. to say, you know, that, uh, that we don't have to rely on this thing, but it also requires that we do certain things before a situation comes up, right. That requires, that that may require intervention and that not all situations require intervention, right. Right. Um, either from individuals, uh, bystanders or what have you, um, or, you know, from, from the state. Uh, so there, you know, we have to recognize, I think, uh, those things. And this isn't stuff that, you know, I'm just pulling from thin air. This is from, you know, coming from doing 
a lot of reading, a lot of reflecting, a lot mm -hmm. of working with um, folks uh, around uh, transformative justice. And um, yeah, I mean, another thing that I'll just say right from the beginning is that you also don't have to be an expert on these things. Um, there are plenty of toolkits, plenty of materials uh, that have been developed uh, by people that have been doing this work for a very long time that I think are very, very useful uh, and that I encourage people to really just to use, to turn to, to, you know, come back to, to think about, to reflect on, to hold workshops around and conversations around. Um, so you don't have to come up with things on your own. Uh, and, you know, if, if something's not working, then you can, you know, try something else uh, and what have you, but you don't have to be trained um, to do this work. You don't have to be a professional in this field um, mm -hmm. to do this work. Uh, and I know that, you know, there's, there seems to be a trend towards professionalizing uh, mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff. And I think that we need to resist that. But um, there are people who have been doing this work for a long time. So we need to recognize that as well and learn from, you know, from these folks and, uh, and, and use the materials that they have, you know, um, gifted us basically. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I would start off, you know, with that and, um, yeah, if I could add to that too, just quickly, I think, I think that especially, I think that all of that is really important and spot on, especially the first part about the caveats and, and sort of the acknowledging that not all communities have the same resources or organizations or relationships that they mm -hmm. can rely upon um for some of these things and i think uh to that point i think one of the important aspects of having this thought process around um what to do instead of calling the police when possible is to you know similar to uh, the conversation that we had in previous episodes about pod mapping it's not mm -hmm. just figuring out like what is around you and is available because you might not know or you might not be thinking about it, but also like what's not there and like yep. what gaps need to be filled. Um, you know, if you consider yourself an organizer, you know, this, and I'm, I mean, of course, like if we're having this conversation, I would assume that a lot of organizers have already thought about this stuff. So I'm not saying they haven't, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it could help you think about, you know, what is lacking in your community um, and what things, you know, what sort of think, services yeah. or you know structures or supports or or relationships that need that need to be uh, boosted or created? Exactly, exactly. Identifying the resources that are not currently in place is part of you know doing this work. And right. I know that you know um, folks might be thinking you know oh well there's got to be a you know a, a guide that says you know there's like here. 101 ways that you mm -hmm. can, you know, 101 things that you can do instead of calling the police. And I'm sure that those things exist, they're out there um, and what have you. But once you start reading through some of these lists, you'll see that each one of the suggestions requires a great deal of work. It, there's no like quick turnaround. It's really, um, a shift in thinking and a shift in uh, 
you know, relating to each other uh, and what we perceive as, you know, threats and how we respond uh, to harm. So I mm-hmm. think that, you know, we can we can start that kind of sets the tone for where we want to take this direction uh, or this the direction that we want to take this conversation in. I can get that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> probably should have had more caffeine before. It's already dark. I can't even believe it. Right? I know. This, <laughs> man, this whole thing is just, it, it takes me like six weeks to get adjusted. And, and I already have it, Damn. you know, I mean, it's already my calendar, March 8th, 2020. I know when it's, when we go back, you know, when oh, we man. finish the clocks. I'm, I'm looking wait. forward to it. <laughs> To what you said, though, I mean, you know, the when I when we were thinking about this episode and and creating the and and coming up with my notes and doing the research, I kept coming back to, um, you know, again the pod mapping episode and how important of a first step like those interpersonal relationships really are, and you know, like kind of connecting back to to what else you said about professionalization, like it may not be that you need to identify the nonprofit that fits every need, you know, that would Mm -hmm. substitute the police. It could, you know, especially when, for instance, violence or harm or or what have you impacts you or someone in your circle, you know, someone in your personal life, um, really building and strengthening, identifying uh, your relationships, coming up with, people that can hold you accountable that you go to when someone else needs to be held accountable or, or, you know, uh, not held accountable, but uh, when accountability is needed, um, you know, that, that really can't be underestimated. It really, you know, I was also thinking about um, in New York city, the, the plan that no new jails put out uh, was titled, we keep us safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I just think that, I don't know. I, 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 would implore people who are listening not to underestimate the power of relationships with your friends, with your family, with people in your neighborhood, on your block, you know, and like sort of overcoming that isolation in confronting some of the things at least um, that one might call the police for otherwise, Um, you know, and again, on a case by case basis, it's, it's too easy to just be like, you know, a draw a line in the sand. Um, it doesn't really fit mm-hmm. with the reality for everyone. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to me, the pod mapping and, and thinking about personal relationships and overcoming that kind of isolation um, is a critical first step to, you know, asking, you know, maybe one of the first questions that you should ask when you witness something that you might want to call the police for, which is like, who should be the first responders in this situation? Yeah, absolutely. 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 Who should be involved? Um, And, you know, I'll I'll say this. um, Well, there are a couple of things that are running through my head right now, but uh, I think the most relevant is that, you know, uh, in terms of who needs to be involved in the process, um, things like circles like our, you know, um, TJ circles or peace Mm -hmm. circles, if uh, you're using uh, RJ, um, the people who use those circles are the people who get to say what happens, right? That you can't really have someone from the outside come in and 
and dictate what should be going on in that circle. That it's mm -hmm. really about the people that have been, you know, impacted. If those, you know, if someone that has been harmed um, wants someone else there who's outside of that process, then you know, then that's a conversation to be had, right? And mm -hmm. that may be um, that may be useful, right? But you just you know, so I want to I want to underscore that that um, the people who use the circles um, are the ones who get to design them, right? Mm -hmm. That there it's it's about them mm -hmm. uh, and and no one else. And you kind of have to, you know, not kind of, but you have to respect that. Yeah. Um, I would also, you know, I would also say that the work this work takes time. Um, and that there are no quick fixes. I know I think about this a lot. I'm new to my um, new to my neighborhood. Um, I mean, I have wonderful neighbors and things like that. And as far as I can tell, uh, in a little bit uh, under a year that I've been here, no one has called the police, at least on my street. Um, but I don't think that they actually have to because there's a heavily, you know, we're heavily surveilled anyway. Um, and I see the cops up and down my street way too often for my own comfort. Um, and at least from, you know, what I've been able to, to gather from like informal conversations with folks, there's definitely a bent towards, you know, doing, uh, what do you call it? Uh, neighborhood watch and things like that mm -hmm. to implicate, you know, um, or bring in. Uh, the the state uh, into the community in ways that I find really um, really difficult, right? But I also, you know, need to work on developing the relationships with my my neighbors um, so that we can have conversations. I mean, I imagine sitting around in my living room, you know, at some point in the future, um, and and having conversations about this stuff and sharing the kinds of resources that we're talking about here. So, you know, while it, it's it's hard to do this stuff, it's hard to do this stuff, but, you know, and it's hard in our own lives, even if, you know, you know, um, theoretically what to do, if, if you've talked about it and you've attended, you know, workshops and done all kinds of things around this work um, that, you know, when you're, in a, in a neighborhood and your neighbors are reluctant to have those conversations or see it as, well, this is what we know, mm -hmm. um, that we need to recognize that as well. And, you know, I just wanted to, you know, to share that so that folks don't think, oh, well, you know, in, in my community, we have it all figured out. We don't. I have, yes. you know, I'm, I'm struggling with how to, you know, approach folks in a way that's going to be productive and, you know, and, and bring them in. So, um, so yeah, so that work, you know, that work continues. So I'm not sharing things or telling people to do things that, you know, um, that I've have completely figured out. I'm saying I'm struggling with this stuff too. And this is what I'm thinking of as I'm approaching, you know, as I'm approaching other people and, and trying to, um, trying to build the world that, you know, or at least a community that, that I feel um, many of us want. Right. Yeah, so. exactly. And I mean, you know, this, 
touches on something that we've talked about in past episodes, especially more recent ones within the last year on transformative justice that, you know, a lot of this work, you know, we have to set our expectations accordingly. Like a lot of this work is, uh, you know, we're still sort of testing out uh, different ways of being with each other and, and like addressing harm. And we can't set this expectation that like, you know, it's going to work 100% of the time or the entire thing is a failure, you mm-hmm. know, where like some people, even though the police don't operate that way, the comfort in calling the police and this is how we do it and this is how, you know, it's figured out already, um, you know, people want to match that expectation with whatever the alternative that we're attempting to pursue is, you know, mm-hmm. is it going to be 100%, you know, like a steel box of a solution? Um And, you know, the fact of the matter is that unless we try to, you know, live out principles differently or or live out different principles than the ones that uh, our society is operating on right now, then we're never going to, you know, we're never going to move in that direction. Um, Mm -hmm. So it is a lot of like setting the expectation and being willing to experiment and take risks um, in pursuit of, you know, that world that you're talking about that we're trying to build towards and we can't shy away from that or be you know or be like cowed by people who might be uh doubting the efficacy of that we have to try mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. so oh go ahead sorry no go ahead i was gonna say you know there's um a couple different situations that we could maybe talk about um you know again these are pulled from some of the research that uh that we did um you know i appreciated earlier on when you said like are you know is it a situation where like you even really like need to have an intervention right and i think um for me one of the ones that stands out is when it comes to like defending property right mm-hmm. um you know like again it it depends on like a a case by case basis you know what is the property who is impacted like what are the circumstances um but for the most part like you don't need to defend property, right? Mm -hmm. Like, especially if it's got nothing to do with you. Like if you see somebody, uh, you know, like shoplifting, for example, I mean, for me, the thought is always like, well, I don't know what that person is going through, right? Like, are they stealing food for survival? In which case, like me defending that property isn't going to make a difference in anyone's lives for the better, whether it's Mm -hmm. a person who's being shoplifted from Uh, or the person who's doing the shoplifting. Um, And, you know, the alternative being like, if you need, you know, for instance, for insurance reasons, like if you need to get the police involved uh, for a bureaucratic reason, like, could you go to the station instead of calling the police to the scene? Um, And so property for me stands out as like one of those things where like, you know, it's something that we're trained that like, oh, if you see, somebody stealing something or somebody, uh, you know, um, but even, oh, but I, I think that, um, you know, in the scenario that you talked about in, in terms of the car or whatever, um, in, in a lot of places I know in LA, uh, that there are signs all over the freeway that say, you know, if it's a minor fender bender, just pull over, you know, exchange information and keep it moving, that there's no reason to call the police. So, you know, there's some recognition that calling the police for even minor things makes just no sense. It's it's absolutely, I mean, 
it doesn't make sense, you know, for us generally. And I, I feel like, you know, we all, we always seem to find ourselves having to say that. Um, and I don't think we should, but, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, that has shifted the way that we think about, okay, well, you know, someone really rear-ended you and did it on purpose, then that's a different thing. That's not like there was, you know, a little fender bender on, on the freeway and no one was harmed. No one was injured uh, in any serious way. And, you know, you could all just walk away. So, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, crimes against property or what we call crime uh, against property is really interesting. And I was, I was sharing this last night um, in my class because uh, we were talking about, you know, transformative justice and how we respond to these things. And uh, I'd assigned um, Maya's, uh, Maya's book. I didn't assign the entire book, but I assigned chapter eight from uh, her book, Lockdown, Locked Out. And, you know, my students were really riveted by what she had to say in, in that text. And I shared with them an example of, you know, what I witnessed um, a couple of years ago when I was in a store in L.A. And at the time I was uh, running what's called a craft services business um, and I did catering as well. But I was in a store and I usually, you know, had to shop like five, six, seven days a week. Um, so I always had access to a lot of food and, you know, I also gave away a lot of food. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm at the checkout in, you know, this chain store called Smart and Final in LA. And um, this young man had been arrested um, for stealing something like, you know, a loaf of bread. Um, and not like it was a loaf of bread, you know? So it's like, okay, so here here we have the plot to lay miss, but also, you know, <laughs> I mean, literally, um, I'm thinking of, you know, how the store manager could have handled that differently because, you know, at least, um, at least in this chain store, there are different levels, you know, different kinds of food brands and stuff like that. So the store brand is the cheapest one and their bread was always between like, you know, 75 and 99 cents. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, you call the cops for like a loaf of bread that costs less than a dollar. Yeah. Like, you seriously call the fucking cops on someone for something that costs less than a dollar. Like you, it, it didn't register with you that you could have given that person a dollar and just, you know, and the loaf of bread and just kept it moving. Like you could put right. that money in, you know, in a till and, and be done with it. Um, but I was also upset because I had so much food in my car left over from a job that I just gotten off of and that I needed to get rid of. And, you know, it's like, had had I gotten there just a few minutes earlier or had I, you know, we passed cross paths um, and I, I often knew where to go to, you know, to, to give away food and things like that um, if I couldn't get to an organization. So, you know, I shared that example and, you know, we talked about the kinds of responses to, you know, to these things. And it's like, you know, in a retail establishment, um, which is stores, a retail establishment, um, the biggest defenders of property are these managers who aren't getting paid very much and yeah. whose situation is, you know, not really that far from the person who also needs because many times, you know, it's like they're they're also struggling, you know, yeah. and 
as I stood there talking to my cashier, who was not that far away from, you know, we weren't far away from where this happened. Um, you know, she said to me, she's like, oh, you have food in your car? And I said, yeah, I have a ton of food. Like I, you know, I don't have time to go downtown and, you know, to give it away. Um, I said, so, you know, if someone can take it, that would be great. I'm like, I wish I'd known and I could have given it to this young person um, that obviously needed it. And the cashier basically said, do you mind giving it to me? Yeah. You know, so I ended up giving it to her and she was just like, she went into the story about how she had a child and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, her boyfriend was there and he he had been waiting outside to, you know, take her home. And he came over to my car and took the food, you know, and it's like, you know, just one tiny thing like that, um, that can change things, right? Because people right. aren't stealing people aren't stealing bread because you know <laughs> like i don't know why people think that if you're stealing food that it's anything other than you're fucking hungry yeah right like you know oh i just want to go out and like pull one over on somebody in the community just for like, fun, it's just it, it's infuriating um but you know and i don't know maybe that was a little too long-winded um to, no, I mean, it, it also raises a, a, you know, maybe a, a point I want to make kind of quickly that like, this goes back, you know, also to having a sense of responsibility for your community, right? And like, developing a skill or a, a set of values or responses of, you know, looking at somebody like you're saying, like coming in and stealing food, and, you know, maybe instead of trying to punish your way out of like stopping that, you know, trying to figure out ways that you can, as a member of that community, help address the need in the community, mm -hmm. you know, whether it is, like you said, you know, just offering the food or like helping to direct people to services or, or so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, if you're in a community, you're responsible to a community. You yeah. can't be an island. Well, I mean, it's, it's also recognizing in the, in the moment that people need to have their immediate needs met. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So it's like if someone is stealing food, it's because they're hungry. And if it's not for them, it's usually for, you know, a parent or for a child or for someone who can't actually come in and do this themselves. Right. So, right. you know, um, recognizing that one, they need to eat right then and there. Right. And um, and that's and that's a big deal. I mean, again, you know, it's like um I have so many examples, I, I'm not even going to share them all, but, you know, where situations could have ended up with someone calling the police instead of, you know, and my approach was, okay, how can I best use what I have and what I can do, you know, the capacity that I have in this moment um, to try to change things. And if you don't have that capacity, that's completely understandable. We're not saying that you need to come in to every single situation and participating yes, right. today. Um, that's not it at all. You have to decide when, again, go, it goes back to what we said earlier, you have to decide when and if you should be involved and uh, if you should, you know, intervene. Um, right. And, you know, and ask people, um, if it's okay, you know, it's like, um, when people ask me for food, you know, um, or money all the time, and I don't usually 
carry cash. I mean, I li we live in a cashless world for the most part. So, you know, it's like on hot days, uh, if I'm driving around, I usually have a, like a case of water in my car. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't leave it in a car because I don't want it to be a thousand degrees. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's like if I see someone who's thirsty, I just give them water. And it's like, you know, it, it's such a basic thing. I mean, a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of not having or not calling the police um, are really that simple, right? Or really that right. simple. And I know I, I witnessed this so frequently in LA because the police are brutal to, um, to, to folks that are homeless and houseless out there. Like yeah. they are absolutely brutal towards them. Um, and it's just, you know, usually they're asking, you know, for something cold to drink. Uh, and, you know, it's like the person just wants water, like water. And right. we're denying people water. Like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, right. seriously, what the fuck are we doing? Um, I want to shift gears here um, just a little bit. Yeah. So that um, we can talk about a couple of other things. Uh, something else that's on my radar as well is um, what to, you know, in response to uh, mental health crises. Mm -hmm. And we talked a, a bit about this, or we talked quite a bit about this in the episode that we did, um, was it over a year ago now with Devin Springer mm -hmm. uh, and the kinds of responses, you know, around mental health. And, you know, this is this is one of the biggest things, at least for me, because I'm I lived for so many years being afraid that someone would call the cops on my son, um, mm -hmm. and that you know things would end up badly. And we see that you know mentally ill people tend to be very much uh, the targets of police violence. Uh, so calling the police into situations where someone is in crisis um, doesn't bode well for them. Uh, and in some cases, as we've seen in the news, it doesn't bode well for other people around them. Yeah. Um, you know, so um, one of the things that, that came up um, as I was putting, you know, putting this stuff together was um, an article, I think it was in Rolling Stone, um, that said that uh, in 2012, Rahm Emanuel closed up the last trauma clinics in some of Chicago's most violent neighborhoods. And in New York, Rikers Island jails, um, jails as many people with mental illness, quote, as all 24 psychiatric hospitals in New York State combined end quote, which is reportedly 40% of the people jailed at Rikers Island. So 40% of the people at Rikers Island have a mental illness, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, you, it's mind-boggling. same thing here in Maine. It's like 60%, uh, or it's somewhere around that 60% of people at the Cumberland County Jail have at least one uh, mental illness or substance use. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And Rikers, I mean, in Rikers is huge. And New right. York is like ginormous compared to me. Huge. Right. <laughs> so huge, it's like, huge, huge. You yeah. Think about, you know, that there are just as many people in Rikers as in all 24 psychiatric hospitals in New York combined. That is just 
devastating. Like that is just devastating. So we have basically turned over, you know, the, um, not even treatment because people aren't getting treated uh, in prison. It's like in a lot of cases they're left, um, you know, they're neglected. um, They're, you know, put in cells or in isolation uh, for months and years without any kind of medication, without follow-up, without counseling or any of the things that they need to support them through whatever is going on. And then they're eventually, you know, released um, into society and, you know, without any resources uh, to provide, you know, to help them. So we're not really doing a very good job in, in those, you know, in that instance. Um, and I don't know, what do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's absolutely correct. And I think it, you know, it overlaps when it comes to drugs and alcohol as well. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I've seen here in Portland, you know, people are very quick to call the police if they see someone who is drunk or high, you know, either like sort of listing on the, on the corner of the street or, you know, maybe they're being loud or they're just sort of acting, I guess, unusually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people call the cops instead of sort of asking. And again, like, you don't have to, like, put on a cape and, like, step into every situation you witness. But, like, you know, a lot of these situations, uh, all you need to do is ask if someone's okay and if they if they need something, you know. Yeah. And uh, if- and, or if, they, if you want to just leave them alone because they're just, you know. Uh, you know, or I remember when I lived in New York City, like a, I guess now like a decade ago, um, you know, we would frequently see people sort of nodding off on subway platforms. And uh, what, you know, my friends and, and folks would try to do is to sort of like gently, you know, talk to them and sort of gently try to guide them to a seat instead of mm-hmm. like just either leaving them there to like sort of list at the edge of the platform or calling the cops because, you're nervous, you know, Um, because, you know, like you said, with what happens when that person ends up in jail, like, I can't tell you how many stories that I've uh, come across in my reporting of someone getting thrown in like a drunk tank or or the equivalent for, uh, you know, for drugs, um, and it being like a a death sentence for them, you know, either getting delirium tremens for being forced through withdrawal or, you know, getting back out on the street and using and overdosing because your tolerance has dropped. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that you need to think like a step ahead and not just act on the impulse of like, well, if the cops come and sort of take him away, then he's off the subway platform, right? Like he must be safer. No, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you might've inadvertently set off a chain of events that poses a more immediate risk to their life than, than yeah. maybe their experience. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of what, you know, is happening when, um, when people do call in the police is that they're not concerned with other people's safety as much as they are with their own, mm-hmm. right? And they think that they, they see themselves as doing something really good, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, and, I mean, I, again, LA, LA is such a fucking problem, um, you know, or has such a fucking problem with this. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I was out there, I was in a supermarket again, um, this is part of what I did. And, uh, 
this guy comes in and, you know, he's like very loud and he's telling the cashier and a manager and anyone else who, you know, looked like they worked at the store. He's like, there's this guy outside panhandling. Can you call the cops? Can you call the cops? And Mm -hmm. you like for five minutes, you know, he just kept going on and on asking people, you know, like, that worked in a store if they would call the police or whatever it's like okay it's also like whenever what 2017 2016 whenever that was and uh it's like dude you got a cell phone like if you really wanted to do this why are you putting this on the store um but you know he felt as though because he was a patron of the store that it was the store's responsibility too so you know it's like again a store that i frequented uh when i was out there because that was my life. And I scrambled to get out very quickly and he was walking behind me. So I saw the guy that he was talking to and I purposely walked over to him and I pulled out, you know, some cash and I gave the guy, I don't remember like 10 or 20 bucks. And Mm. I was like, do you need any food? You know, he was fucking livid. I don't remember what he screamed, but he was screaming at me as I was walking to my car and I just paid him zero mind, you know? And it was just like, because people who are hungry hang out by, you know, grocery stores because people are shopping and they're getting food. And it's like, you know, if you give them, they know that they can get a banana or something from you as you're walking out, right? Or that you'll get some cash back and you'll give them some cash when they come out of the store. So it's like, you know, recognize that people, all human beings need to eat. All human beings need to eat, period. And to me that that matters more than you being a little uncomfortable because you didn't like that this, you know, person without a shelter, without access to food, was bothering you. And it's right. like, it wasn't bothering you. It's like, all you have to do is keep walking if you don't want to give someone, you know, give someone food. But anyway, um, I, I think uh, that there was one something else that you talked about um, earlier in terms of, you know, uh, harm reduction. And I think that this is also um, really apropos to this conversation that, you know, when, Um, There are a lot of groups and there are a lot of trainings that are happening across the country in response to the opioid crisis and, you know, training people to um, to to give. uh, Oh, geez. What's the name of the drug? Narcan. Narcan. Yes. Um, to, to administer Narcan and to carry that around. And I even saw some flyers over the Halloween weekend, um, circulating on, you know, on Instagram, um, where some parties were going to have, you know, Narcan available, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was just freaking brilliant. Right. So that's, that's not only, you know, an alternative to not calling the police, but it's also harm reduction. You know, it's like, I mean, we can call, we can call not calling the police harm reduction as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, And I I think that that, you know, that's another example, um, a concrete example of what folks can do, uh, because I I think that's part of what, you know, people always ask us, like, okay, they they want like a blueprint, they want a shortcut for how they make this stuff happen. And I'm like, a lot of it is already, you know, being done, we just need to 
create more spaces for these kinds of things. Um, and we just don't seem to be have we don't seem to be having as many conversations as we should be having. Um, but we also don't have, you know, the resources in a lot of cases um, yeah. to do, you know, to to do some of this stuff. Uh, and not all of it requires money, but some of it does require um, resources in ter- in terms of time and in terms Absolutely. of people yes. um, showing up. And I think that that's an important part of of this stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, some of the other stuff that I'm just I'm thinking about and glancing over again, it just all comes comes back, you know, to um, you know relationships and and harm reduction, you know, Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, like, um, like one of them is like noise complaints, right? I have that. It's literally my next point. Yeah. Well, go ahead. No, no, no. no. I I was going to say, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, there's the traditional, you know, sort of example of like a big party next door or like above Mm -hmm. you, you know, your neighbors or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, instead of just calling the police or calling, you know, if you live in New York, calling 311 or whatever, uh, you know, you could get to know your neighbors as well as possible. Um, and, you know, like build that, you know, I, I think, you know, it doesn't, again, it doesn't work in every situation, but I really do think that like when people can put a face to their neighbors and talk to them and, and people are kind to each other, it becomes harder to disrespect them, you know, yeah. and it, it becomes... Yeah you know, you, you sort of more have that voice in the back of your head that like, oh, I don't want to, you know, upset so-and-so who I just met, you know, or they, they came and they spoke to me and they were very nice. And, you know, I want to respect, you know, that. And again, it's not always going to be like that. It's it's also about fear because we've been taught to fear the people that we live around, even though we live with them. Right. Like, you know, um, just, you know, not to get too deep into this, but, you know, everything from the way that we tend to design houses and it's something that, you know, um, one of my, my courses, uh, we used to read Jane Jacobs, uh, Death and Life of Great American Cities. And we talked a lot about, you know, what community looks like in cities and, you know, whether it's a housing project or a street in Philadelphia or, you know, something, whatever, um, as opposed to the way suburban homes tend to be built or, you know, things in like gated communities and what have you, where the direction of your door faces away from your neighbor or there's a driveway Mm -hmm. that separates you from your neighbor. So you're never actually running into your neighbor or there's no opportunity for you to, you know, like I live in a, in a community where my porch is open on both sides and my neighbor's door is right next to my door. And, you know, it's like, I can see my neighbors when I walk in and out of my house or when they're walking in and out of their houses or anytime I'm doing something outside. Right. Right. So, you know, that creates a lot of opportunities for conversation around whatever it could just be, Oh, wow. You know, the wind was really something last week and it blew our trash cans down the street and someone, you know, was kind enough to grab them all and bring them up, you know, to our, to our doors. And, you know, cause they're all marked with, with our addresses and what have you, but you can have those conversations as well as other 
deeper conversations. So there's opportunity for that. Whereas in other places, there's not like where you don't see, I find, I find some neighborhoods really fucking creepy um, to even be around. And I mean, I get it. Folks got to live wherever, you know, they got to live, but where you never see people outside. I grew Um, up in a place like that for sure. So uncomfortable in those places. I really am. I I just, I, I don't know. It's like being outside, growing up outside, playing outside was something that was really, um, really important. Uh, for me, it's like we we knew, you know, it's like our parents knew where we were going to be, uh, who we were going to be hanging around. And it, we were right around the corner up the street, you know, or in front of my house, you know, basically just playing and that there were eyes on the street. Right. All the time. It was like there were other right. adults looking out um, and they weren't just looking out for the kids. They were looking out for any kind of, you know, like anyone or anything that seemed out of place and it's not to pinpoint and target you know the other it's just to say you know for example um i lived in north philly for a while and uh the people there like were so amazing like seriously amazing like i got to meet you know my neighbors within like the first couple weeks like all of them basically across the street next door both sides and all this stuff and they came to my rescue um, several times, including once when I locked myself out, once when I needed, you know, mm-hmm. was having trouble with my car. Um, but, you know, and one time when a neighbor did not see my car parked in front of my house, right? And she noticed another car there and she came over and knocked. She's like, is everything okay? You know, where's your car? Are you Do mm-hmm. you need anything? And, you know, it was just this whole kind of thing like, okay, I noticed. I mean, and that can get on people's nerves. Um <laughs> True, sure, but it's not but wholly, it's not completely, exactly. yeah. It was, right. it, it was, you know, she was it, completely, it was just one of those things where she Looking was asking, yeah. yeah, like she was concerned and she wanted to make sure that, you know, one, I was okay, but she also wanted to know, you know, it's like who's going in the neighborhood um, and paying attention to the kinds of patterns and, and waves that are happening, you know, uh, at different times of the day. And that's something, you know, having eyes on the street is, you know, an important thing. It's like when you're, when your front porch faces the street, instead of being in the back of the house where it is in a lot of suburban homes, you get to see what's going on in the neighborhood. You're part of the life of what's happening in the community. And, you know, that again, it's like, you don't need to, you don't need to have uh, a police presence when that is going on, because you can, you know, if you see some kids getting into a tussle, like after school, you can just basically say, hey, what's up, you right. know, <laughs> right? And, and that's it. And then, you know, it's like, they'll be like, oh, oh sorry, miss, you know, and it's like, yeah, and, and then they'll just move on, right, and go right. home, um, for the most part. But yeah, I think that there's so many different ways that it, that are not necessarily don't require a whole lot from us. Um, maybe a little thought, but there are things that are within our reach. Like not everything is about, you know, like some tremendous process. Right. Totally. And, you know, I think when it when it comes to things like and and I actually think this is the one that we've talked the most about, at least in the in the past year on the show, is when it comes to things like violence. 
you know, because that's the one that people always go to, right? Well, like, what happens if there's violence? Like, of course, I have to call the police. Um, And I think, again, like, I just think back to our, the TJ episodes that we've done and, and the research that we've done. And, you know, a lot of violence happens between people who know each other. It's yeah. not like random acts of violence. A lot of it follows yeah. patterns. A lot of it, you know, involves, um, you know, the, the culpability, the dismissal, the uh, um, decision to ignore those patterns by the people who are around uh, the people who are involved. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, when it comes to like, well, what do we do instead of the police when it comes to violence? I mean, again, not to sound like a broken record, but like building those relationship skills, doing the pod mapping, like developing, you know, developing sort of the capacity to do a lot of the the steps that we've discussed when it comes to transformative justice of getting someone uh, to safety immediately to, you know, providing them with the support that they need to <clears throat> bringing in the people who can hold the other individual, uh, other individual um, accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are all things that, again, like we can, when people's minds might go to like, well, we need the cops and we need the guns for, you know, the most extreme example, like, usually those things are rare, like you don't mm-hmm. normally, you know, people don't typically see that in their everyday life walking around and when they do when they're when they are living in a situation where there's that violence around them it's not alien and random it's people in their families and in their relationships and in that sense you know again i'm not trying to say that like what we were saying in the very beginning of the episode that like no one can ever call the cops that's not my decision to make for other people and and so on and so forth but again like um we keep like i like i said we keep us safe like having mm-hmm. those relationships and that built strengthening that community is mm-hmm. probably a faster step and a more um a more impactful step than mm-hmm. just relying on some outside presence to come in mhm yeah and i mean it's like the minute you introduce you know uh, cops and cops come with guns Uh, and sometimes other weapons, the minute you introduce those things into situations, those situations tend to escalate. Totally. Uh, And that... people are just shouting at each other and you introduce cops into that situation, then it can become violent, you know? Uh, And more more stressful and tenuous and people really, you know, um, it's it's not a good mix. So, you know, it's, again, it depends on who's doing the shouting, what's, who's involved, who can be there, because you need to understand who is best equipped to provide the intervention, right? So who you are, like, if it's a couple of guys, you know, a couple of big dudes, and here I come, you know, it's like, I may not be the right person to intervene. Now, mm-hmm. when they listen to me because, you know, they see me as an older person or what have you, but, you know, it might be another dude. It might be another dude who's like, okay, fellas, um, you know, can, can we bring it down? You yeah. know, let's, let's sit down and have a yeah. conversation. So we also need to recognize who is best positioned to do these interventions and have those people you know, step in when it's appropriate, when it's necessary. 
Um, and I think that, you know, the whole thing about introducing the police into the mix really focuses on the kind of individualistic, you know, mentality that we tend to have towards these situations, that it's about the individual and we need to um, isolate that individual. We need to punish that individual. Mm -hmm. They need to suffer, you know, um, and in some cases suffer lethal consequences as a result of whatever it is that they're doing. Whereas, you know, the things that the strategies that we're, we've been talking about today um, tend to focus more on collective action mm -hmm. and what responsibilities communities have to the people in those communities, right? So it's not just your responsibility to, you know, take care of yourself if you're harmed. It's the entire community that, you know, is around you. And this right. is something that, again, it goes back to, you know, the the pod mapping, which is a, a useful tool. And for folks that um, haven't listened to that episode, I would suggest that you go back and listen to that. Um, to that episode and, and learn a little bit about that and use that tool in your own spaces so that you can identify um, the people that you can call in a crisis um, before crisis happens. Uh, identify the people that you need to do some relationship work with um, so that, you know, it's like those aren't people that might be your first phone call. Um, but you understand that there's there's some work that needs to be done there. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, you know, what resources are available and what resources are lacking uh, near you that you might need uh, to help you get through a situation. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a major situation. It could be something like, you know, um, something happens in your building, your building floods and <clears throat> or pipes break in your building in the winter it happens all the damn time. Mm -hmm. uh, and everybody has to move. Where are you going? Like, where are you going? Yeah. You right. know, um, and, you know, I would also urge folks that have resources uh, to make those resources available um, because I get, you know, it's, it's really, mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a tendency to be like, oh, well, there's not much that I can do. Shit. If you got a room in your house and you're, you know, volunteer that room if you're comfortable with that. Like, yeah. seriously, you know, <laughs> yeah. if you right. can if you can provide other things like, you know, rides for people to get to and from work or to the hospital and, and things like that. Yeah. Those things actually are, you know, are important. I mean, it's yeah. it, it just. You think about, you know, um, I mean, shit, I think about my own situation. Like over the years, it's like I, I've had new cars, but I've mostly driven used cars uh, and some real beaters over the years. But, you know, it's like it, where they've broken down and I've been really, you know, scared to yeah. have my car break down somewhere and have to walk, you know, a couple of miles like you know, are you are you willing to step up and, you know, help somebody out who is in that situation or, you know, they they may not be willing to tell you. But this goes back to what Brian said earlier in terms of building those kinds of relationships and having a way for people to that have resources and 
capacity to connect with others um, so that it's a mutual aid kind of thing. Um, and we're all helping each other. It's, I don't know. Did that yeah. make sense? It absolutely did. I thought it was beautiful. Definitely. Um, I think we can end it there. You know, there was one, one last thing that's sort of lingering on my mind, just rewinding very slightly to the conversation about um, like the noise complaints. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically, you know, to, to like our, our white listeners. Uh, I think that it's important to interrogate when the impulse to involve the police stems from a desire conscious or, or otherwise to control space and mm -hmm. to stop things from being what you might perceive as being messy. And like, I, I was thinking for an example, this connects to a lot of the things we've talked about, but I remember the spring, it was one of the first warm days that we had here in Portland. Portland as maybe a lot of you could guess is like winter, 10 months of the year. And so like the warmth is a very precious and like exciting time here. And, uh, you know, I live in, uh, in sort of like the downtown of Portland and, um, you know, a lot of people have, you know, particularly a lot of rich people have bought a lot of the older homes here and are gentrifying uh, and sort of like converting them into, you know, these big, beautiful sort of mansions in the middle of the city. And, you know, we also have like a lot of homeless people in the city. And I remember on one of the first warm days, there were these two guys who were just sitting on a random stoop playing guitar and drinking beers. They were singing, but they weren't like, they weren't hurting anyone, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But the woman across the street called the police on them and they immediately got arrested. And I remember I was walking by uh, as they, they were getting put in the cop car and the woman was talking to her neighbor, just being like, you know, they're out here drinking and singing and they're sitting on my front step. And it was just like, why couldn't you just ask them to move? Like, I'm sure that they would have just gotten up and left and gone somewhere else. I mean, you know, especially if you're homeless, you don't have space, you know, like space, yeah. uh, space is a contested thing for you. And, and so for me, when I've been thinking about that interaction all year long, um, and to me, I can, I just feel like there's something, there's something white about wanting to control space in that manner and using the police to control space, because it's not about like danger. And it's not about anything other than like, I just want to hear the birds chirping and the rainbow fall in front of my house at all times. And if it's not happening, then the cops are coming. You yeah. Know? And um, it's not even about that because they don't, they never look out of their windows. They never right. sit out on their front porch. They're never out on their lawn or in their driveways. It's like those folks sit in their back rooms or in their family rooms, in their yep. basements or whatever. And they watch their, you know, their TVs. Here I am making right. this about what people do in their homes. But, um, <laughs> I just, I wanted to just say that about control yeah. because I do think a lot of calling the police people might say it has to do with danger or safety or blah, 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 but it really is about control. And yeah. I think as part of interrogating the impulse to call the police, we need to recognize and reckon with when it has to do with control, because that is Absolutely. not healthy. Absolutely. I mean, it's like the, um, you reminded me of a situation that happened um, again, when I was living in North Philly and, uh, 
you know, it had been storming and storming badly, like badly, lightning, thunder, all that kind of stuff, things being blown around and whatever, dark, stormy night. Anyway, um, you know, it was in my back bedroom and my bedroom, um, you know, faced uh, my my neighbor's house. Right. So <clears throat> we, uh, you know, heard a noise in the middle of the night. And I just kind of, you know, peeked out of the window. And when I peeked out of the window, I looked, you know, and I saw my neighbor and he had uh, either a flashlight or his phone. I don't remember which one it was. And he was just like, who's there? Who's there? You know, I just rolled right over and went right back to sleep. It turned out it was somebody, you know, in the abandoned house that was, you know, between us on on the back side, um, in the backyard and uh, who was just seeking, you know, a place to to just hang out, you know, yeah. now most people would hear a noise and call the police. I was like, I'm good. Like, yeah, it's, like, it's fine. <laughs> like, again, yeah, you know, it was like, and, and yeah, I mean, there were, you know, it's, it, it wasn't, it was a rough place um, to be. I mean, it's, you know, the gunfire was not uncommon and all that stuff, but there was also, you know, there was something that happened on that block that was also very special. And, um, and I hate that it was special or unique, um, at least in other contexts, because yeah. it was, you know, it, like people knew each other, people were looking out for each other and people un also understood that, you know, again, like in that situation that it's raining and you need to find a place where you can get some shelter and get out of the damn rain because it was cold and that that didn't require a call to the cops. Right. Like right. why would we be calling the police in that situation anyway? So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's more to be said about all of this stuff. Um, we barely scratched the surface in terms of talking about, you know, women um, in this conversation and, mm -hmm. you know, women being very vulnerable to violence and how we respond to that stuff. Um, we didn't really touch on, you know, um, the experiences of uh, Black and women of color, including trans women uh, in this and what it means to, you know, introduce the police um, in situations uh, that that involve these folks. Um, but those are also conversations that we anticipate having um, or digging deeper into um, in, in the future, in the near future, rather than, uh, you know, further out. So, um, yeah, this is, again, we started the year by talking about transformative justice and we wanted to spend time focusing on this and that work is nowhere near done um there's so much more to to cover so much more to discuss um we will include a list of resources in the show notes um again there's a lot of toolkits um the creative interventions toolkit which is a massive toolkit uh highly highly oh, recommended yeah. Um, insight. So that to me yeah. Sure. Insight has a toolkit that I also very much recommend. Um, critical resistance, uh, has developed, you know, several toolkits. Uh, there, there's so many, there's so many. Um, there's also the, um, uh, safe outside the system, uh, 
which is part of the Audrey Lord project. They have the safe party toolkit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's also really, really useful um, in terms of, you know, creating spaces uh, for people when they're having parties uh, and really, you know, what to do and, and how to how to support folks. So um, so there are a lot of there are a lot of things that are that exist and that are out there and we're going to share as many of them as we possibly can. Uh, we encourage you to uh, share them as well with, you know, with folks that, you know, in uh, in your community and uh, and what have you. So any okay. final thoughts, Ryan? Yeah, I'll just add to that just really quickly. One of the resources that I really appreciated in uh, in working on this episode was from Project Nia from Mariam Kaba and and her comrades. Um, it's called Chain Reaction. We'll have mm -hmm. a link to it. Alternatives uh, to policing. And to your point about the things that we're missing from this conversation, they have a really um, important video series in them. Uh, and and a curriculum where they speak to uh, black and brown youth about what happens when you call the police and how communities, how their communities are working to reduce police engagement. Um, and so you can hear directly from, uh, you know, youth in Chicago talking and, you know, sort of telling their own stories about policing. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll link to that. Um, I just wanted to shout that one out, too, because I thought that that was a really incredible um, project and resource. So. Yeah, um, I appreciate our conversations as always, Kim. Um, Thank you. Appreciate folks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. Take care. We'd like to thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyond prisons. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or you are an abolitionist and would like to join us on the podcast, please drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Also, I'm available to speak and to facilitate workshops if you'd like to have me at your next event please drop us a line at the email mentioned previously. Thank you.